Colonia Cast, episode 43. Today we're joined by Dr. Peter Paul Van Dyke, who is the director of the Turtle Conservation Program at Rewild. He's also deputy chair of the IUCN Tortoise and Freshwater Turtle Specialist Group and director of field programs coordinator at the Turtle Conservancy. Uh, Dr. Van Dyke has done an incredible amount looking at analyzing the turtle trade uh, in Asia and, and sort of the global scale and is intimately involved with the conservation of, of turtles and tortoises, uh, working with the IUCN and, and such. And so we're really excited to talk to him today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Van Dyke, we asked this question to all of our guests. What first got you interested in turtles? All little kids love turtles, and I never grew up. And that's a quote from Peter Pritchard, but I love it. Um, essentially, I, when I was seven or eight, there was one of those little hatchling red-haired slider turtles that showed up at a pet shop. And I had to have it and it died after a couple of weeks. And so then I moved on. Two or three years later, by a whole series of coincidences, I ended up with a bucket of four red-eared sliders, uh, nice adults. And that essentially started things. And it involved more tanks and more ponds and in the end the greenhouse and all sorts of other stuff. And it set me on the path to look at could I even end up doing zoology with a focus on turtle research? So yeah, it was an accident of youth and it never went away. That's cool. A lot of people we, we talked to have similar stories and and you're originally from the, the Netherlands, of right? So there's not a lot of turtles there. Not, except uh, the occasional one sea turtle that gets washed up on the beach uh, called from Right, right. But that, that's it's it's sort of interesting to think about how this the sliders can kind of kickstart someone's interest and, and you can take it to the, the level that you've taken it. Yeah. Um, so how, just sort of out of curiosity, a lot of people that listen are, are younger and, and currently collegiate level uh, and sort of thinking about how they can make a career in turtle work. Uh, maybe you can just give us kind of a rundown of sort of where you went to school and, and what you studied. Right. Well, I went to high school in the Netherlands. Then I went to undergraduate uh, degree in Ireland uh, on a track to uh, for zoology, science, zoology. Um, I also got very much interested in scuba diving over there while in Ireland. So, so essentially, I was heading in the direction of marine biology, zoology, fisheries, uh, fish interest. Uh, I've always been interested in watery stuff. And so fish was really an interesting thing. Um, I was well on my way to becoming a marine biologist. Eventually, you end up as a fisheries manager, counting fish eggs from planktonic controls and then advising on fisheries quota and so on, which politicians then will happily ignore. But as I was starting my uh, doctoral uh, degree work, um, I had essentially, I had got a little bit of money and I had um, essentially a winter to sit in the laboratory and read papers because you cannot do any sampling on the Irish coast during winter. It's just too stormy. Forget about getting anything done. So I figured, okay, let's see if I, I want to see some turtles in the wild. Uh, at this time, this was 1980s, no, 1989, 1990. Um, the uh, conservation plan had come out from the Torch Freshwater Turtle Specialist to a group a year or two before at the big Canterbury meeting. And it said like, we really need 
survey work done in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Myanmar, Burma at that time still, Laos, Cambodia, nobody had been there for turtle surveys for 30 years or so. These countries were completely closed down. So I figured, okay, let's see if I can get there. The only way to get into those countries really was to talk to the embassy in Bangkok, if you could get a visa to go and visit and do something there. Uh, so I essentially just booked a three months uh, plane ticket to Bangkok. I had a couple of contacts there and then see if I can get into those countries. Uh, nope, couldn't get uh, them. They had absolutely no interest in anyone coming in to survey the turtles. So I was in Bangkok for three years or three months and had made really good contacts at the university there with Dr. Kantor and Tiakut, who had just started working on turtles there. And we just focused uh, for three months on turtle surveys and things took off from there. That's really, so you, you did a large project in that period of time where you surveyed uh, sort of the, the, the Meiklong Basin uh, then and associated tributaries. And you found most of the turtles that are in the country, I would assume. Um, is, what kind of stories do you have from doing that sort of field work? What, what was that like? Um, well, yeah, we did a couple of years of survey work. We started with the Meiklong Basin because it was just a really nice area. We had done some initial surveys in different parts of Thailand. In Thailand, it's a big country. I mean, someplace it's two days driving before you get there. It's also very different biogeographical zones. Um, so the Meklong area, Western Thailand, up against the Myanmar border, has essentially the best forests left in Thailand. It has the best ecosystems, the most intact large areas. It's also an area focused for uh, large animal conservation, elephants, tigers, uh, um, big cattle, uh, wild water buffalo, Banteng Gaur. So when you have all that infrastructure to research and protect stuff, it's nice to run the turtle project in the background so because yeah. all the infrastructure is already in place. It was logistically convenient. We had, from the previous surveys, we had figured out like, yeah, there's an awful lot of different species there. It was like 12 different species theoretically occurring in that area. So great opportunity for a thesis. Yeah. Uh, like what is the resource partitioning between 12 different turtle species? How do they all sit there together? Right, that, that's that's a lot of questions that are real fascinating <laughs> to, to, to look at when you've got an assemblage like that. I've, I've looked at, Something I'm, I'm talking about here is uh, it's it's not really it's it's related to that sort of thing is competition between sliders and pond turtles yeah. and it, it it goes down to that resource partitioning. I'm curious about with, with that uh, specifically. Did you quantify overlap between different turtles in terms of the habitat they were using and and what did you find in, in that area? I, I tried doing that, and after a while it hit me that there was no need for those animals to partition anything because they were just so bloody rare. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. population density of these things was just minimal uh, because, yes, it's a protected area, but that doesn't mean that the area has not been impacted for the last 50, 100, 500 years. Um, interesting realizations after a while is that this place very specifically for the management for the benefit of the gray, the large grazers, got intensely burned every dry season so that you kill off the grass, all the minerals go in, and as soon as the rain comes at the start of the wet season, poof, you've got this flush of really nice, good grass, which is good for the, the big grazers, which is then good for the tigers and so on. But that sort of annual burning just 
destroys the recruitment of your pre-elongated tortoises. All hatchlings essentially become toast. Um, so I found myself with a population of a lot of adult, really old elongated tortoises, very little recruitment. Uh, and then you look at the streams, and yes, there are turtles there. They, they didn't actually have the fire impacts uh, on the population structure. Uh, but even then, they were uncommon enough that, yeah, the, the question became almost more like, how do we find each other to reproduce rather than are they competing with each other? And then while I was there, I was reading ecological works, and one of the really fascinating insights was from Wolfram Alfenberg's book on the Bengal Monitor really good ecological study of the Bengal monitor across the train. And then he comes into competition, starts talking about what is the competition between, what is the nearest ecological competitor for food of Bengal monitors? And it's big predatory beetles, because they're all beetle hunters. <laughs> like, okay, uh, any guilt theory, any ecological interaction competition theory for turtles, uh, you're not going to think about water snakes or a snake and fish or whatever other is there so yeah the whole idea of resource partitioning between the turtles fell apart because they're partitioning resources with so many other things yeah, you, yeah. you can't even start figuring it out without devoting your entire life to one square kilometer to trying to figure that out right i've thought about that a lot in terms of how you think of that if there's competition between species you have to to reduce it down to what are they competing for yeah. and food space are kind of the two yeah. separate things and then a lot of other ideas kind of fall in those categories but when it comes to to areas with with what i find with the sliders and pond turtles you have so many of them but still there's enough food to go around yeah. but in a situation like thailand where you were working and you've got really rare species that that's not even really a question um that, that sort of brings us, so you've done a lot of work with the turtle trade, and mm -hmm. that's something that uh, you can tell us maybe about the, the magnitude of that. But I'm curious, did seeing how rare a lot of those turtles were early on, is that what motivated you to want to analyze the trade? Um, no, not really. I, I really wanted to just become a biologist, ecologist, to just do academic research, study how these things live, how they reproduce, how they die, whatever, where they occur, uh, kind of the basics, because for most of the Asian species, we still didn't have them. Half of them, we didn't even know what clutch size is, for example, or if they do multiple clutching, who knows? Um, but then as I was there in the 90s, we did start getting kind of indications of trade developing um, not so much in Thailand, strangely enough. Uh, Thailand has always had a fair bit of local subsistence use consumption. Thailand's always been a good export point source for the uh, wildlife trade, including into the pet trade. So a lot of juvenile turtles go into the pet trade, uh, whereas the, uh, the adults, when encountered, may just end up as uh, local food or so. Uh, Thailand also is a regional trade hub, so stuff was filtering across the borders from Laos and Cambodia and Myanmar, so you would get interesting rare stuff so showing up in the markets, pet trade mostly, on the Bangkok side. Bangkok has a really thriving uh, pet and aquarium trade, so it was always a journey of discovery going there on a Saturday, <laughs> yeah. see what uh, might uh, show up. Um, <coughs> sorry. But also, as I say, 
we were getting indications of turtle trade coming out of the surrounding countries going yeah. into China. Mostly we were seeing unusual stuff, uh, stuff that's really tropical showing up in central Chinese markets or yeah. southern Chinese markets. So like what's happening there? Initially, the Chinese were saying, oh, these are all native to China. They were just collected uh, nearby from the market uh, and sold in the local markets. Uh, and we started looking at that a little bit getting a little bit concerned uh, but then WCS organized a big turtle trade con conference in Phnom Penh in December 1999 and they had a good sense of inviting at least two people from every one of the regional countries uh, from India to China to Indonesia uh, and those two people would be one a NGO type conservationist and the other a responsible person in a uh, government's wildlife authority and so we have all these people together we put all that those bits of information together because we all have snippets of information export data and observations in markets and um, occasionally encounters with uh, collectors in the field if you're doing field research and so and we start putting all the pieces together and we realize like holy cow this is 10 times 100 times worse than we thought yeah. it would be and it's not just one place it is across and you could see that were waves going further and further out tapping into new and new turtle populations that must have been that must have been really alarming when it, all, all of was. that was was put together but yeah how is how has the trade grown like even since then like it it's very difficult to keep track of how the overall yeah. trade is because um we agitated against it obviously we wanted it brought to sustainable responsible uh, volumes we've also had a large mixture of farm turtles go into the trade and sometimes that's so mixed with wild stuff that it's very hard to figure out what is farmed what is what collected um, a lot of the trade has kind of disappeared into the wholesale where as a random individual you cannot not just walk in and see what's happening there uh, one of the nice things initially uh, in China was in the Qingping market, the, what we understood to be the core trading point for uh, freshwater turtles and tortoises coming in from Asia. It was just a bunch of stalls on the street uh, in downtown uh, Guangzhou. You could walk there from the hotel, you could just go through there. They didn't like you photographing stuff, but you could at least walk through and say, okay, yeah, they. 40 stalls they've got uh, an approximate several thousands uh, of this species a couple of hundred manuia impressa a couple of thousands uh, this that and the other so you've got a bit of an approximation of how much what species and because of what species you have an idea where stuff comes from if it's an endemic to myanmar obviously there's trade flows coming in from myanmar if it's an endemic from sulawesi like you wonder why yeah sulawesi is being built. And if you have a time series of what shows up in the market and what volumes, uh, when we started realizing that, yeah, the, the trade goes from one place to the next to the next, you have about a three year cycle where they start hitting a particular species or population. You have three years of trade by the third year, it starts fading down the volumes, reduce, and then by year four, you don't see it anymore. That, yeah, that, that's, it's interesting to think about that. And, and you, you mentioned that there's sort of a lot to unpack there. I think to, we, we want to make it clear there's sort of a distinction between commercial and subsistence yeah. 
trade in an animal or utilization of, of turtles. Uh, not to say either are sustainable, uh, but there's two different ideas there. Um, but so you mentioned, um, and we're talking mostly about the commercial aspect, this large scale trade of, of turtles. Uh, you mentioned going through some of the markets where these animals are being sold and, and I, you weren't there obviously to, to participate in the, the buying of those animals. You were documenting this. Yeah. Um, what was the attitude of, of a lot of the vendors there toward, toward you? Did they know this or was it? Yeah. Um, well, the advantage is that, uh, as I say, the main trade street for turtles at the time is it's in downtown Guangzhou. It's within walking distance of one of the fancy hotels that also was used by a lot of the groups bringing people, Western people into China to adopt Chinese babies. So people were used to all these Western faces bumbling around, killing time, uh, going through the markets and looking at stuff. So I, the fact that I was a turtle biologist documenting the trade wasn't really anything unusual. They, they were used to uh, pale faces walking through there. Uh, so yeah, you could, there, was, there was no problem. It, they kind of started shouting when you started wandering into the back rooms. Uh, actually, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Walk out and uh, no problem. Yeah, right. You, you get a little bit. You, you see something and you keep going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe we can sort of take a step back and think about from the perspective of a conservation biologist. Uh, we were talking about that. We sort of gravitated to the Asian turtle trade in particular, um, and and that is sort of the Asian turtle crisis, which started the group that we're at the symposium yep. of now. So. Um, but, but there's some significance to that. Obviously, you convened a meeting to specifically address the situation in Asia. Why is it um, that Asian turtles are so uh, in, important to conserve? What is it that's unique about the turtle sort of fauna, uh, fauna there? Um, the first one is that there's more species richness and species diversity in Asia, uh, tropical Asia, than anywhere on the planet. Second area is here the United States, US, Southeast, but um, yeah, Southeast Asia is just a really, really important area for durable diversity. If you want to keep all the pieces, like Wade Kippen says, you have to keep all the pieces and be in the countries where that happens. Sure. So that, that's one. The other one is that the Asian turtle trade it started in Asia. It essentially went from tropical Asia into southern uh, mainland China, as well as a couple of other places and so on. But it's predominantly it started out as an Asian issue. Um, I can go into the economic reasons why that happened. Sure. Uh, yeah. But it started out as China absorbing turtles from nearby countries, and then when those countries started running out of turtles that were easily cheaply accessible, then trade started moving further and further out. So you saw that initially it was essentially Myanmar, Vietnam. Then kind of a few years later, you got into Cambodia, Laos, Indonesia, India subsequently. And then the trade also started expanding into the United States, Texas. Um, we've been getting indications of it going into Africa, but the then you start getting into the economics of it. How effectively can you move stuff around in big volumes? And the infrastructure, the logistics for Africa are just not as good as they were in Asia. So the Asian infrastructure, the Asian, Asian economics just made it very easy to ramp up wild collected turtle trade very quickly. 
Yeah, and so that, that's the, the motivations behind what, what's causing it is sort of this sort of cultural idea that the turtles are, and now it's a lot of different things, but historically for sort of traditional medicinal purposes and pets now, I mean, the, the captive industry is, is driving a lot of that. Uh, and, and so that's kind of interesting to think about. Uh, but in terms of sort of how profitable this is, you said that, that sort of the economic incentives behind this, maybe you could expand upon that. Well, it's like any trade, it's a trade chain. Um, so if you have a consumer in one country that's willing to spend 50 or hundred dollars on a fancy dish to impress their friends at the big uh, dinner, uh, that's a good uh, sales piece. Uh, then a middleman is going to try and supply that uh, to keep that trade going. Uh, and they're talking to source middlemen, uh, traders overseas to source stuff, who in turn are going around villages in encouraging people to go and collect turtles. Uh, and so you get your in-country collector in Vietnam, in Indonesia, in uh, Tanzania, whatever, uh, who collects a turtle for 50 cents uh, per kilogram and uh, the middleman uh, puts a couple of dollars on that, ships it across, so you have your shipping costs, uh, the importer uh, puts another uh, layer of profit on it and then uh, goes to uh, the retailers and before you know it, you're looking at a $50 or to $500 turtle. But it's a guy who is doing the actual collecting in the field who just gets spent and all the money essentially sits in the middle uh, man trade in the trade chain. It's a really complex dynamic. I remember seeing a, the, in the tortoise magazine, there was some talking about plowshares mm -hmm. and you see just out of uh, sort of Baldy Bay and Madagascar, uh, just the tortoises originate there and then they're shipped to multiple different areas and, and distributed in a really complex fashion. Um, something that's, that's interesting to me is it seems like in a lot of cases that the, the people that go and do the, the recruiting of locals to to find the turtles are ahead of the conservationists in terms of where to look. Yep. So what, why is that? How do they know where to go? Money talks. If you know, um, if you have a good incentive to earn money, you're going to do your research. You're going to find out where are the best places, who to talk to. Uh, uh, it's that networking. These guys are working 24 seven, uh, trying to develop new trade routes uh, where their competitors haven't been yet. Right. That's and the, the, the downside to it is within kind of the, the converse to that is within conservation, there's not as much economic incentive. Nope. No, in fact, we are permanently held back because we have an idea, we want to do something, but then we have to write a proposal and wait for grants money to come in before we can do it. And then we have to we have to go by the book. We need to go and apply for research permits and all that sort of stuff. And it takes us a long time to actually uh, write up our findings and circulate that. And it, we have this lag time. Whereas if you're just doing stuff on your own privately, um, all that matters is how much money is put, are you putting in and how much is coming back, how quickly. These guys just have the, the freedom to move at whatever speed they yeah, they can. Right. It's, it's a scary thing to yep. think about. Um, and so something else too, thinking about the, the, the dynamics of how turtle dealers and, and the people at the top sort of organize all of this, that there's the dynamic at the level of the countries and regional specific uh, 
sort of trade dynamic. And that you've mentioned that this it's the, the turtle trade has sort of started in the northeastern portion of Asia. Uh, but there's other regions of it. I think in the uh, in the, that overview, the Asian turtle trade, mm-hmm. Colonial monograph, uh, you talk about the, the regions of South, Southeast and Asia and Indochina. Um, maybe you can just highlight sort of how those regions have sort of supplied uh, the, the trade in different ways. Uh, and, and is that motivated by the Northeast? Um, pretty well at the time of the Asian turtle trade monograph, the late 90s, early, uh, early 2000s, all the vast majority of the trade was a consumption commodity trade. The product was turtle. There was a little bit of gradation, like this is preferred turtle, that is a stinky turtle, that's a lower price. But essentially, as long as it was a turtle, there would be a market for it. So when one population starts producing, middlemen start talking to other people elsewhere and uh, sourcing different supplies. Uh, So it went around. Um, But it was very much a commodity trade. Who cares what species it is? Versus along the way, people started picking out the hatchlings, the juveniles, the pretty ones, and diverting those into the pet trade. At the same, or roughly around those the time, 2000s, uh, China stopped frowning upon pet trade and having pets. So the owning a dog or a cat or an exotic pet became much more acceptable and fashionable particularly in places like Yunnan, which always have been a, a pet keeping area. And so alongside this whole supply of food turtles, there were also the, the pretty ones being picked out for the local pet trade, as well as a couple of uh, pet traders in southern China and Hong Kong knew about this and knew that it was a good market for all this stuff in Europe and North America. So they just went had their agents go to the market to pick out all the, the cute, uh, small, pretty ones. Uh, and of course, the little ones are a lot cheaper to ship. And they essentially generate the same retail price in the pet trade as big animals. So your profit margins on the juveniles are much bigger. So the juveniles went into the pet trade, the adults went into the commodity trade, but the guys collecting stuff in country had no idea what it was. It's a turtle, it goes in the trade, somebody's paying me here on a per weight basis. So a couple of pennies for a hatchling turtle is still better than nothing. And unfortunately, there's not enough ecological, biological understanding to realize that if you take even hatchlings out, you're going to have absolutely nothing left for your population 10 years from now. When you're struggling to put a meal on the table for your kids and family today, you're not worried about the turtle population 10 years from now. What, What insight do you have as to like how this all started? Like, why is there such an enormous demand for turtles in particular? Like, does it have something to do with the culture or is it just their valued um, or something? Yeah. Um, southern China has the, the ethnic groups in Southern or the, the communities in Southern China have a long, long, long history of consuming natural resources, natural products, uh, wildlife and so on. It's, it's exotic. It's desirable. It's, it's special. It's something prestigious. So there's a long tradition of eating wildlife particularly in southern China, not so much in central northern China. Over the decennia and centuries, most of the wildlife populations in central southern China have essentially been depleted badly already by that consumption trade. By 1989, 
you have the Chinese reforms. We have Tiananmen Square. We have uh, arguments for greater democracy, greater openness in China. Um, the Chinese Communist Party decided that political openness was not a good idea for them. Uh, but uh, to keep people engaged and give them something, to, give them an outlet for all that energy, they opened up the economy. They went from a strict communist system to a system where you could actually actually make some money for yourself and improve your life and the life and the status of your family. Um, so as they opened the economy, people started setting up businesses, making trades, doing stuff. And then somewhere about 80, I think 89, maybe a bit later, they made the Chinese one, the currency convertible to other currencies. So what until then had just been a little bit of barter trade across the, bound, the borders, now suddenly you could say like, hey, I'm going to give you actual hard dollars or I'm going to give you a Thai baht. If you ship me this stuff, they could pay for international shipping and they could pay for suppliers away from the, the Chinese border region. So suddenly you could import stuff from elsewhere. And that ability to import wildlife from other countries was what made the enormous difference. And it wasn't just turtles. It was also snakes, it was pangolins, it was birds, it was all sorts of stuff. It sort of became a more of a capitalist kind of large-scale system. For, Very for much. That. That, that, that brings me an interesting point that I'm sort of curious of, uh, is how much competition is there between the people at the top of the, the turtle trade that are sort of organizing a lot of this? Are they, is that driving people to poach more? That's maybe... It's, it's probably a factor, but it's also where every one of them is trying to find something new and corner a new market. So a new species, a new area. Um, it's, it's an ongoing dynamic market and there's very much fashions uh, for a couple of years. Um, Moremi's Anamensis from uh, Vietnam was incredibly valuable. And that was where all the focus was. Everybody was trying to get it. People were trying to breed it, were successful breeding it in captivity, and then suddenly that market collapsed. But then the trade switched to uh, uh, Moremi's Quantumensis uh, or uh, Nigricans. And so you have these pulses, and whoever gets into a particular species first is going to have the advantage. And that's where the plowshare somehow came in. Somehow, somebody figured, oh, this is a really pretty tortoise, and it's very impressive with that big brow spread at the front. Um, see if we can get a couple of them. Uh, people have tried to steal them uh, in the 90s uh, from the valley, uh, from the Dural breeding station. Uh, that didn't work, but the species was on people's radar, and then suddenly here somebody decided to talk to the locals in uh, Bali Bay, and things went downhill at an incredibly rapid pace. Um, with the turtle trade being so um, productive in terms of cash and oftentimes legal, what are some of the dangers that you've run into tracking the turtle trade? I've never really had any particular danger. Or That's good then. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. No, turtle trade is too low profile to really attract any okay. particular negative uh, impact. Also. Reptile trade, wildlife trade in general is generally so low risk from a prosecution judicial uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. 
they just laugh it off. Okay. Even if they get arrested, if they get busted, uh, they'll uh, essentially just spend a couple of hours in court and they probably walk away with the fine that's uh, 1% of yeah, the, the week's turnover. Yes. Exactly. It's, it, it's not a concern. It's, so there's no particular fear or, okay. uh, or measures to keep you up. Gotcha. Something that, that's interesting going back to that, uh, the Asian turtle trick monograph uh, is in, in that you sort of take all that data to generate a total number. You estimate that it was something on the order of 13,000 metric tons of turtle mm -hmm. traded annually, yeah. just imported into Northeast Asia. Uh, but that, that number sort of got a lot behind it. Uh, how do you come up with something like that? And how good is the data? Um, it, it's, it was a guesstimate and it probably was a major underestimate, mm -hmm. but what we did was we essentially got numbers from, uh, all the countries that were participating in the workshop, like what is your customs recorded export of turtles? We added those up. We have to look at what do we know? What's turning over in the Chinese markets? What is an estimate? Like how many animals are there? Uh, and how quickly does that stock turn over? Does it turn over in three days? Does it take three months before that gets sold? But, and so we came up with that best guess estimate of 13,000 metric tons. Uh, it probably was a gross underestimate, but at the same time, not everything in that 13,000 metric tons was uh, totally about collected. There was also stuff, uh, some of the Thai uh, Softshell farming uh, production was in there and so on. But uh, overall, based on what we understood the trade to be, based on the, what was showing up in the market in China, it was 99% uh, well collected hard shells, and then only the Chinese soft shells uh, were having a uh, predominantly large majority to almost completely uh, agriculture to source. And at that time, also, we started getting. Uh, Moremi Sinensis and Moremi Zerivsi coming in from farms in China and Taiwan. Um, but essentially, that it was a, an extrapolation of the volumes we saw of output collected turtles in the markets in South China. And that for uh, folks in the US uh, that don't know the, the metric system as well, uh, that it's approximately 29 million pounds of turtle annually so it's it's really a astounding amount of species and, and just quantity and an astounding amount of individual turtles being taken out of the wild out of the wild right millions and, of turtles per year yeah and and so that that's a great sort of segue into species specific understandings of how kind of the trade works and and what's getting taken out of the wild but the one that's sort of really interesting to, to me personally is the Sulawesi forest turtle, because mm -hmm. this is a strange situation. The, I, the Rhode Island snake deck is sort of similar to this maybe, uh, but for the Sulawesi forest turtle, this was described in the mid 1990s, but it was, it was known from the trade. So why did this go undetected in the wild for so long? Well, that's why did people not survey the reptiles of Northern Sulawesi and come across it? Um, yeah, it's a matter of who goes out there to survey. Is there anyone interested in doing it? And if you're surveying, are you surveying for birds, for snakes, for lizards? Um, the sad observation was that 
at in the 80s and 90s there wasn't really much interest among indonesian herpetologists to focus on sloshing through streams at night to find turtles rather than going out collecting uh, new species of uh, snakes or lizards so it was just overlooked it's sitting in a very small area that's never really been surveyed well um, and of course you have to understand indonesia was a dutch colony until 1948 and there was a lot of Dutch scientists interest in the easily accessible areas like Java, uh, bits of uh, Sumatra, Bali, the Moluccas. A lot of research done there, a lot of collections, uh, even if people just collected stuff from their backyards or from their camping trip and then sent it back to a museum in the Netherlands to have it analyzed in the square. That just somehow did not happen in Northern Sulawesi, so nobody cared about a turtle being there, except locals, they knew about it uh, always. But then when middlemen go around and say like, hey, um, we're going to pay you so many rupees uh, per pound of turtle, it doesn't matter what species this uh, uh, can you supply us? Yep, they'll supply whatever is there. And Sulawesi is full of Coran Boinensis, but in Northern Sulawesi, they also picked up the Leucocephalon. And that's how they ended up in the food trade and then eventually some of the agents of the pet traders, uh, Hong Kong based and else, they went like, ha, huh, that's something new. And they were very specifically looking for unusual stuff uh, coming out of everywhere. Uh, just like they came out, uh, they, they spotted the accidental hybrids from uh, some of the early aquaculture. And they went like, ha, huh, we've never seen this before. I'm sure we can sell this for a lot of money overseas. And so that's, that's how they ended up uh, in the pet trade coming out of the food trade. Uh, the food trade was essentially blazing the trade channels and the pet trade just uh, rolled coattails on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, it, it's, I think it's good you, you make the distinction, be, sorry, it was described to Western science in that time, but yeah. people knew about these yeah. turtles. I mean, yeah. they, they're, they're known from, this, from where they occur. Yeah. Um, another thing, you, you mentioned sort of the aquaculture and the, the, the relationship between the food and pet trade is interesting. There's some, the, the quantity, I, I remember in 2017, Dick Boat gave a presentation that had a lot of estimates of the total mm -hmm. number of captive turtles yeah. in, in farm situations. It was sort of ridiculous numbers. Um, but does that take any stress off of wild populations? Yes and no, generally no. Okay. <laughs> um, because by having a, supply a sustainable supply of agricultural animals you maintain a trade once you have that commodity trade of agricultural animals there's always going to be a couple of people who want the real thing the wild animal that came from the wild that struggled for life that is better quality that is more stages that's special so even if you have a sustainable uh, capital produce supply you're still going to draw in additional animals collected from the wild. In addition, um, the turtle farming industry, again, would like to diversify its, uh, its species options, its offers. So they're always looking out for the next species that's going to be fashionable in the consumption trade or in the pet trade. Again, these farms, they don't care who they should supply. If it is sold into the pet trade, great. If it's sold into the consumption trade, the same money fine goes wherever um so 
the farmers are constantly looking for new opportunities and so that needs additional or new breeding animals from the wild for new species so the aquaculture industry itself pulls animals from the wild and impacts populations uh, as well so um between commodification uh, of cap of bread as well as the ongoing uh, wild collection facilitated by and driven by the, the agriculture sector, it's probably not particularly yeah, um, helpful. Right. And so I, I figured you've visited quite a few turtle farms. Uh, maybe I'm incorrect with that, but I, it's, there's a lot of really strange turtles there, as you pointed out. What, what's the most interesting thing you've seen in the turtle farm? Um, probably the interesting thing the first, the first turtle farm was a tiny little operation in Hainan. It was just essentially somebody's back room and then a, a storage building out at the back. But this guy was producing uh, hybrids uh, between Cora uh, Trifasciata and Moremi's Butica. Uh, that got us all excited about uh, the whole hybrid turtle stuff. But that, that was a very high-end, small-sized farm. They said, like, oh, yeah, one of his uh, relatives has this farm in... Uh, uh, mainland China in Guangzhou so we went like can we go and visit and we did and we walked in there and the big shock was the scale of the operation like this agriculture farm went to the almost to the horizon <laughs> like you're talking about acres and acres and acres of ponds 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 and just wherever you see they throw in a hand of food and turtlets popping up everywhere wow. it's like having hundred thousand or more turtles at a farm yeah, that's that's nothing the volumes are just incredible the, the chinese industrial agricultural industries they don't do things in small measure they do it in really large scale the situation of the golden coin turtle too comes to mind like that that sort of highlights that distinction between those, that species is highly sought after for medicinal trade and it's farmed, but at the same rate, it's still being poached in the last remaining habitat. Have you been seen that species in the wild and, and what's your experience with those? I, I've tried finding it in the wild in Hong Kong, but uh, no, all we found were a couple of traps. Nah. Uh, because oh, when, when you have an animal that even when captive bred, um, is worth several thousand US dollars. It, the, you can spend a lot of time bumbling around hillsides in the hope of finding one or putting traps in there. Uh, and then if only you get one a month, you're making a lot of money compared to uh, the alternatives. And as I say, even the risk of getting caught is minimal. And if you do get caught and prosecuted, uh, the prosecution is so minor because Wildlife trade is generally seen as a victimless crime. Crime. Nobody was killed. Nobody was raped. Um, it's just a little bit of uh, eh, well, some animals were taken from the wild, and maybe somebody should have paid uh, income tax on a bit of profit. But it's generally not taken seriously by the ju judiciary. So there's no major disincentive. So it seems like most of the time it's just like a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Yeah. If the punishment was really increased, do you think that would help the situation out at all? Uh, it would certainly be a facilitating factor, but humans are humans. There's always going to be somebody who's doing something illegal. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's again, it's not 
a matter of completely eliminating all illegal trade. It's just bringing it down to levels that are manageable, sustainable. Uh, well, shouldn't really say sustainable, but if you can bring the illegal trade from the or the collection from the wild down to levels that don't really affect the population, that it's just one more predator in the ecosystem, then yeah, we can live with that. Uh, but it's it's about what kind of level of impact is too much to maintain the population in the wild. And speaking of the golden uh, coin turtle and it being used in harvest for medical consumption, where does the belief that turtles have medicinal value come from uh, before modern times? It's, it's one of those ancient beliefs mm -hmm. um, where in Chinese medicine, there's a lot of trace elements that come from natural sources. And some of those trace elements have some medicinal uh, purposes uh, and benefits and effects. Um, and I'll, I'm all, I always like pointing out that uh, Western European medicine was just as yep. on the exact same wavelength as Chinese medicine uh, in the Middle Ages. You have things like liverwort. If it looks like an organ, it's probably good for that organ. Right. <laughs> so, that's a basic human trait that there's stuff out there in the environment that can help you right. improve your body. Um, getting to the specifics of turtles, um, one way or another, they may have figured out that, uh, for example, the turtle bone is helpful. It's a, it's a calcium supplement, it's a mineral supplement, so it improves your overall uh, metabolism and uh, so on. Um, turtle bone also contains trace amounts of selenium. Selenium has cancer uh, inhibiting properties. Okay. So maybe they figured out that there was a causal relationship between turtle bone and a lower incidence of cancer, or it may have been sheer coincidence. Now, of course, cow bone has just as much selenium as a turtle bone. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, maybe there's there's something in there. So you can't really say like it's complete nonsense because right. there, there is a trace of validity in there. But at the same time, if you want to have selenium to inhibit or reduce the risk of cancer, you're better off with the selenium pill from the pharmacist. Yeah. Okay, cool. Going going back to the, the trade uh, and sort of the, the punishment for it. And I think then we'll sort of go into something that you, you were talking about is the sustainability aspect but before we get into that um where do you see the most progressive uh sort of countries in terms of dealing with it and prosecution for it in, in asia and globally um certainly the united states is ahead of anyone else when it comes to tackling wildlife trade um they have the united states has the lacy act which is an order of magnitude more effective than any other legislation when it comes to wildlife crime. Uh, it's very simply, it means if some wildlife was illegally obtained or traded elsewhere and makes its way into the US jurisdiction, US jurisdictional system can trace it all the way down and prosecute for the original offense. Um, no other country has that. It's, and so in most other countries, if you collect a turtle illegally from the wilds, we know we all know that it's illegal because that species is strictly protected in the only country where it occurs, like the Plasia tortoise. But once you have traded it across and brought it across into a different jurisdiction, 
if that species is not listed as a specifically nationally protected species in that country's legislation, you have essentially no leg to stand on to prosecute. So you can have an animal that is 100% guaranteed illegal in source, but you can't do anything about it. In the US, with the Lacey Act, you can. Um, so yeah, the US stands way ahead of anyone else. Then other judiciaries, um, it's very risky to start naming names. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, in general, all you need to do is to take the Transparency International's uh, Corruption Index and you have a pretty good idea of uh, who is implementing uh, wildlife laws properly and who is less so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of correlated with the political. Totally political climate. governance and corruption. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so we've sort of talked about the, the factors that motivate the trade, the numbers behind it and, and the incentives. But from the conservation perspective, the ultimate goal is, like you said, how do we make it sustainable if that's even an option? I think the first question there is, is any sort of turtle trade, maybe even specifically focusing on subsistence trade, That that's sort of the more primitive level of trade is that sustainable is that even sustainable um i tend to think of it more in the the way of the life history of the turtles a essentially you have a turtle being born as a hatchling takes three five ten fifteen years to grow to an adult then it's an adult lives for a couple of decades puts a clutch of eggs in the ground every year and keeps doing that for a long time you take out of that adult nesting female, you've lost all those future colleges. You take out one of 20 hatchlings from a nest, there's still 19 that have chances to go over there. So the exploitation of adult turtles is vastly more impactful than the exploitation of hatchlings, for example. So uh, subsistence rate, you look at some of the studies of the distribution of wildlife around villages in, the Am in Amazonia. There isn't a red footed tortoise within 10 kilometers of that village because that is the daily walking uh, distance for a hunter. Um, even that traditional subsistence use of red footed tortoises has driven that population into ex local extinction around that village. Yes, there's still a source population 15 kilometers further, so the animals keep filtering back, occupying that unoccupied forest space, but even that is not sustainable. On the other hand, taking off a couple of hatchlings is probably not going to crash your population. If you have a, a responsibly managed uh, captive breeding, whether that goes through big commercial agriculture scale or um, just backyard hobbyists uh, supplying other hobbyists uh, for the demand for particular species, that's probably minimal impact uh, in the long term. Uh, but the main issue is that you minimize the collection of wild adult turtles from the wild to supply any trade, uh, whether that is expanding the, the founder stock, brood stock for the captive breeding or just straightforward consumption. It's like there's there's so much invested in each adult turtle compared yeah. to the hatchlings that hatchlings could be almost not not expendable, but like compared to an adult female, like removing Hatchlings yeah. of any turtles is, is, yeah. is an it's, order of magnitude. Exactly. It's it's the disposable life stage. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's snacks for foxes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's like the turtles are unique in that they kind of straddle the border between R and K selecting. Mm -hmm. So you get kind of, uh, they produce a lot of hatchlings, but it's not quite to the point where it's it's just, we need, we're just, there could be this high mortality, 100%, yeah. that mm -hmm. still they kind of survive because yeah. uh, of that longer generation time. Well, it, it, it's it's interesting to think about that, that how the, the biology of the animal can influence the level of sustainability of harvest, and it varies quite a bit yeah. um, according to species. So there was, uh, in, in terms of prioritizing conservation work, um, I, when it comes to the large-scale turtle trade at the commercial level, uh, how do you, there's a lot of problems with that, and it goes down to, if you could theoretically stop the participation of locals in the collection of animals, that could end all of it. There's other ways to do that, but maybe what is the most effective way in your mind for stopping the, or, or reducing the commercial trade to a, a workable level? Ideally, if you have everything properly regulated with proper regulation and laws and then properly implemented, then you could maintain a certain trade, including potentially a local income uh, aspect for local communities, uh, indigenous communities and so on. Um, but humans are humans and we have seen that that's often very difficult. So personally, if we could minimize any offtake of adult turtles from the wild, that would be ideal. If you have an adult turtle in your possession, you have a problem, you should not do that. And whether you can enforce that through rules and regulations, probably not at a rural level. Uh, so there's a massive awareness aspect to be done as well. And then you're gonna run into the whole concern, like I'm hungry now, um, I don't care about the turtle next year. So it's, there are no easy solutions. If there were easy solutions, we would have done them a long time ago. Do you think it's even possible? I mean, at a certain level, the practicality. I think our top priority needs to be to secure population of every species in their natural habitat, in protected areas, as source populations, and then hope and work as much as possible to maintain species as part of the landscape as well. Um, if local communities are aware and are willing to manage those sustainably great keep doing that if they decide that they want to be irresponsible and against better advice just keep exploiting and they have local population collapse sorry for them but as long as we keep those species somewhere secure that someday when humanity comes to its senses these turtles can go back and repopulate what's left of the planet then that's the best we can do Right, so sort of keeps keep groups of animals, keep areas of animals. Keep, keep the whole, yeah. exactly, keep the natural areas, the ecosystems, the habitats, and all the species that interact there and interact with each other. Right, yeah, it, protecting something is, is better than nothing. So. Yeah, uh, protecting something and maintaining something is a fraction of the cost of rebuilding and re reintroducing something. The from yeah, an economic perspective, that's yep. interesting. Um, when it comes to uh, sort of your work with uh, the, the IUCN and, and doing sort of status assessments, um, 
what's been the most interesting for you to work on in that respect uh, with, with regard to turtles? I, I don't know if there's a single most interesting aspect. It's the the interesting thing is how all the information from different corners, different sources, all comes together and often forms and reinforces the pattern that we've seen already. It's very interesting to see how the, the same patterns operate for different species in different parts of uh, the planet. And also how every species and every situation is unique and different in one way or another. Right. Yeah, that, that, I think that's a good answer. Yeah, so I'm looking through the criteria for, for a lot of those assessments, it seems like it is a universal sort of application. Where do those, because a lot of them are very specific. It's 80% of this habitat is lost, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Where do those numbers come from? And should is it fair to use a universal criteria for different species? Um, that's what people much more clever than me have been arguing about for decades. <laughs> so I know no system is perfect, but if you want to get some sort of a comparable system of uh, the the threat of different species in different parts of the planet um it's about as good good as it gets it gives you some degree of comparability like this species is as likely to go extinct as that species because they're assessed at the same level or because of the expectations with this species and that species they both qualify for the same level uh, and so you have relative rankings of this one is more likely to go extinct in our the foreseeable future than that one um is it perfect no but is it worth spending an awful lot of additional effort in refining this versus doing something about it? it's it's indicative it's guidance um you can have the best assessments but they don't lead anywhere if you can't act on them and so yes you can assess everything as critically endangered but if you want to act on it you probably need to work in a country where um you can actually work easily rather than spending your time fighting bureaucracy here or fighting corruption so while we have this reasonably objective comparative level of what is most like what is most threatened what is most likely to disappear um at the same time then your conservation measures may need to be here tempered by the reality of Yes, all the threatened species are in country A, but country A you cannot effectively work in. Uh, but there's also a lot of species in country B, so at least we can do something in country B with, with the available resources. And ideally, you want to cover everything and make an attempt at country A anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's we just don't have enough people. We don't have enough resources. Um, we're fighting, we're struggling against overwhelming odds uh, between the climate, between the wildlife trade, between disinterest, between uh, the need for land for food production for humans versus land uh, for uh, nature and ecosystems uh, and water supply and ecosystem services. Uh, these are all balances. There's never a straightforward, simple answer. Right. And and so talking about the, the to those threats, so we focused a lot on, on sort of poaching in a mm -hmm. broad term. Um, for turtles specifically, that there's some kind of an interesting statistic that maybe you can expand upon, uh, but just in general, 
the, the recent Turtles in Trouble paper, it has a, there's a table in there that's, they were some weightings on the, mm -hmm. the worst perceived threats for different uh, issues. And it weights the sort of poaching and, and trade is as 38% of the total, whereas 32% is habitat loss. Uh, that number seems, I'm curious where that data comes from, but also what do you think is the worst problem facing turtles? Um, the data comes from, you do all these threat assessments, uh, they essentially record what is threatening that species at a significant level. Um, so direct exploitation, habitat loss, if you take those both for species, you essentially, you can very simply count how many species are critically endangered and are threatened by um, targeted exploitation. You come to 38%, whatever. How many of the species that are critically endangered, endangered and vulnerable are, have habitat loss listed as one of the key impacts on them? If that's 32%, there's your 32%. So it's, again, it's an approximation, but it gives you an idea. And um, yeah, targeted exploitation, we have very clearly seen that um, it can collapse turtle population in three to five years. Um, so, it, and a lot of us are influenced by the Asian, uh, the Asian experience, the empty forest syndrome. You can have a beautiful forest, there's just no wildlife left. And because it's been taken out, it's not going to recover anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So, yes, targeted exploitation, especially because turtles are so targeted for exploitation, that comes uh, in as the highest impact, the highest threat for turtles. Habitat loss, a little less so because, yes, you destroy the habitat, that turtle has nowhere to go. If you destroy enough habitat, the whole species has nowhere to go and it goes extinct. But we lose habitat not quite as fast as that we are pulling animals out of remaining habitat. And so then the other impacts, um, diseases, yes, Turtles have had a couple of disease impacts here and there, um, URTD and desert tortoises, ranavirus and box turtles. We don't know what else, what we have missed. Um, the Manning River turtles and uh, what the Bellinger snapping turtles have had major disease issues. Um, then invasive species, very much uh, a problem, uh, even if it's just leading to habitats alteration, but also direct competition or genetic pollution in the case of red-eared sliders being introduced in Central America. Uh, and finally, the whole issue of pollution and uh, then associated with that uh, carbon dioxide pollution, climate change. Right, so the, there's a whole onslaught of, of issues. Exactly, it's a portfolio of threats that is pretty overwhelming. I mean, turtles have done stuff they have thrived for 200 million years they've gone through climate change they've gone through all sorts of other things but it never really came so intensely all at the same time uh, and so overwhelmingly i mean climate change normally a turtle population just shift north shift south or go up the mountain down the mountain whatever yeah. you you can kind of still maintain your your preferred habitats and so on if those, the change isn't too fast. But if the habitat is massively fragmented by human infrastructure, mm -hmm. you cannot move around anymore. You get run over on the road before you get to the next possible habitat patch. That's a good point with uh, climate change. It's like uh, 
some people, I mean, there's a lot of the, the data behind that's challenging, but it's not really the argument that people make against it a lot of times is that the climate has changed all the time, but that's sort of not the point. It's, it's the instantaneous rate of change is yeah. the thing that we're worried about. And that's, that seems to be exponentially worse than it has been in the past. Um, and it is climate change. A lot of the ecosystems can probably handle it, um, but the humans cannot handle it. And does the humans move and affect and impact the ecosystem in a different way? Yeah, so, yeah, we will. The planet will get through this uh, climate change uh, pulse, no problem. Uh, we'll we're going to lose an awful lot of species. We're going to lose a lot of complexity, but it it will recover. It's been there before, but humanity may not be part of that uh, recovery. Mm -hmm. Right. That, so that that brings to mind a sort of uh, so it's, it seems like protecting and, and halting trade of turtles just based on the, that sort of quantitative analysis is the primary. That's the primary thing that will have the biggest impact on on reducing loss of species. But habitat loss and fragmentation is close behind that. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of addressing that. Uh, that's the idea of pointing out with turtle priority areas, biodiversity yeah. hotspots. Something that deals with the, one of those papers that deals with that it's something like 16% of the planet is important for turtles. That's a lot of area. Yep. Is it economical to be able to, to, to protect all of that? We can never protect all of it. Mm -hmm. But what you have to do is protect representative patches and ideally somehow maintain connectivity between those patches. Uh, if you can connect uh, parts of river corridors all the better um, and it, you don't often don't need that much square footage even uh, to maintain that connectivity uh, bizarrely where i live in the uh, dc suburbs we actually get black bears coming through the park behind my house every so often they wander down from the shenandoah mountains all the way down the potomac valley and then go into little tributary here park valleys uh, in uh, the suburbs. Uh, it's just not connectivity. It's just a very narrow strip along these streams, like 100, 200, 300 yards. But it mains connect maintains connectivity, and there's enormous biodiversity still hanging around there. And uh, that's sort of a challenge in, in uh, increasingly fragmented habitat, like actually creating corridors that are usable. Uh, yep. Where I'm from in Southern California, it's a they try to do that, but none of the, the mammals use any of it mm -hmm. because it's just there's too much noise pollution. It's like so it, it's it's one thing to to try to do that, but to actually make that work with respect to the animals is challenging. Yeah, and you have to tune it to the individual animals. Uh, uh, maybe that connectivity doesn't work for mountain lions, but it uh, may still work for horizontal rodents or other species. Right. So I think we've covered sort of a lot of um, a lot of that the conservation aspect and and it's been really interesting to hear sort of what you think about those big concepts sustainability and, and sort of the the, the uh, efficacy of doing a lot of conservation work. But in terms of sort of your experiences working in the field and, and such, uh, I'm curious what's the most interesting place that you've ever visited for for turtle work and why. <laughs> Well, uh, that's a difficult one because every place is interesting uh, and every place is memorable in many ways. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's uh, a county park in southern uh, or in the southern suburbs of DC where you walk on the boardwalk and 
just a two week window in spring and go like, wow, there's 16 spotted turtles to be seen here. <laughs> or um, you just spend a day magically on the water on the Chesapeake uh, counting uh, down by terrapin heads popping up. Or you do an ambitious uh, trip like I did about 10 years ago with Russ Mittermeier and a couple of others. Uh, we started up in uh, central Louisiana and then drove all the way to Orlando to one of these uh, turtle meetings. And we essentially hung off every bridge that we crossed and we saw, I think, 16 turtle species uh, in a matter of a week. Yeah. So that's it's a, it's kind of interesting. Like the, the United States comes up a lot when I'm talking to people about the the their most interesting trips. So it's uh, we have a lot of cool turtles here. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were uh, crossing the Chesapeake yesterday, and Jack saw a pretty cool turtle. I saw a loggerhead sea turtle come up for air. Nice. The Chesapeake Bay Bridge tunnel. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen one in the Northeast in my yeah. entire life. Just yeah. just pop right yeah. up. They come through every summer. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's rare. Yeah, that, that, that took me quite by surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I think the contrast between how and how Asia is handling wildlife trade versus the United States approach mm -hmm. to it, but they're, and they're like the two hot spots. Yeah, like uh, it's just really interesting to see. Yeah, and it, it gets back to the whole governance of wildlife resources, but also human attitudes to wildlife living in their uh, immediate vicinity. Yeah. Uh, do you commercialize something? Do you tolerate it? Do you get rid of it because it's a nuisance? Uh, and the United States is pretty good. We still have a lot of space in this country. Um, proportionally, we don't have the population, human population density that we have in Europe. We have this country was settled and developed much, much later. So we haven't trashed this country as much as the Europeans have trashed their continent. And I'm speaking as a European <laughs> from a country that, that has almost no natural vegetation left. Whatever nature is left in the Netherlands is rebuilt, regenerated uh, stuff that was agricultural once uh, 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, stuff is certainly changing. Uh, that, yeah, that area is really interesting with sort of all the the uh, like the seawalls, that sort of thing. Yep. <laughs> yep. With the, the flooding and such. Um, yeah, it, it, it's also a matter of a sign of hope because even in such an incredibly modified environment, you can still have a lot of wildlife. For, surviving and thriving. We've just had wolves come back, recolonize the Netherlands by themselves. They are multi-generational descendants of a wolf reintroduction project in Italy. And they've spread all the way across Central Europe and they've reached the Netherlands a couple of years ago and they're now making themselves very unpopular uh, with the sheep farmers. <laughs> but yeah, nature, if you give them if you give just a little chance, a lot of it will take opportunities and recover. Not all of it, but a lot of it will. At the going back to the trade part, this just sort of, sort of came to me. Like, what, what do you think that the highest correlations? There's a lot of indices to look at the happiness, the population, the uh, efficacy, the government, that sort of thing. What is the highest correlation with uh, with uh, the best regulation of wildlife trade is it is that directly correlated with how well a government functions at a higher level or is it not a direct um it's probably very much a, a function of how low abiding is a population in the first place mm -hmm. um, you have 
by force or by inclination, certain countries are more law-abiding, less corrupt, etc., than others. And that is very much a factor of making legislation and enforcement work. It's not the only one, but it, it's a good start. Right, definitely. It's something a lot of times I think we we think uh, it's obvious, but then you start thinking about, well, what what makes this society more law-abiding? And that, that's more of a... Uh, politic question. It's it's a sociology question, mm -hmm. and a lot of times is how invested are people in these laws, and do they actually believe that those laws benefit them? Because it's a social compact that we have made with everybody in society, and if everybody adheres to the rules, we all are, get better than when we selfishly do our own stuff. But then you also get to a lot of other places, uh, and particularly decolonized countries, they've had a European legal system imposed on them by a colonizer. They resent that colonizer, they resent that legal system, but their traditional indigenous legal uh, system, their arrangements have been destroyed. So they're in a, a much more complicated situation where they may not believe in the rule of law, but at the same time, there is no alternative. And so you get a much more opportunity and inclination to just ignore it. There's uh, some like uh, like complex systems, dynamics, like you could probably do some kind of interesting. It's almost like you have to capture a lot of that with math to understand like how stochastic society's response is. There's something kind of coming to me, but I haven't fully formulated it. But if you had some index of how how much uh, societal sort of view towards government fluctuated, you could figure out, okay, what sort of the, the equilibrium state there mm -hmm. correlate yep. that to how, how, effect, how efficient they are at monitoring or prosecuting wildlife issues. Yep. Uh, and, and so other than that, uh, you've certainly seen a lot of turtles in the wild and, and just animals in general. I'm curious, what's the most interesting observation you've ever seen, if you had to pick one? Um, actually, one of the most interesting observations was the animal that I did not see. Um, I remember doing some radio tracking for a lost cyclamis in Thailand, and it happened way off. And so we're hiking out in the morning, a friend of mine and myself, uh, and we're going a couple of miles into the forest and we're trying to radio track and nothing there. And it had rained the night before, but we were muddy. We come back and I see a full tiger print on top of my boot print from that morning. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, and so, and we had, we knew there were tigers in our area. We would find uh, the footprints, the, the droppings and so on every so often. But so I go about saying like, I never saw a tiger in a decade in Thailand, in the wild. The tigers have seen me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's kind of how big cats operate. Yep, exactly. And the nice thing about tigers is, so I was told on good authority, and I'm very pleased to believe that. Uh, tigers really are creatures of habit. And they go, the, the tiger sits there and he goes like, huh, that's an interesting thing. I've never seen that. My mommy has never told me that I can eat that. So I'll just let it go and just watch it. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, when they could demolish it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you, 
two seconds and you're gone. Yeah, but right. that, yes. that's not their thing. They are not monkey hunters. They learned their, their mother told them yeah. to hunt deer and pigs. So that's what they're hunting. And the rest of the time, they're just like, oh, like, there's interesting stuff in this forest. Huh. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's awesome. Awesome. That is interesting, especially like when you look at sharks, where they'll actually like go to see if it is something, you know, they'll like kind of like test bite to see if it is something <laughs> that, yeah. that they can eat. It's like, I guess, you know, you're fortunate enough that that's not the, the case with tigers that they don't go take a bite. Yep. They go, it's you know, just to double check, you know, yep. make sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, leopards are a bigger issue. Yeah, leopards actually like see us as prey because they're yep. big ape hunters. Yep, and we did have have leopards as well and I saw a couple of those but uh, they did not see me and they were well enough fed that they didn't really need to see okay. me. <laughs> have you had any particularly close calls doing any field work? There's always kind of those stories. There's always stories uh, but uh, really the close calls are when you're careless yourself or make a wrong decision. I remember one of my first trips in Thailand I was going through a stream at night and I came across this massive snake and like big black guy yeah. um, was rubbing some of the shed skin off the side of his head while it had just been shedding and I'm going like huh I could actually grab that if I wanted to because it was like five feet away from me your head was over there could just grab it and I'm going like why would I bother that animal and I just leave it also I walked back and barked off and uh, walked back went back to the, the station identified and eh, probably killed rattlesnake uh, Oh yeah, I had estimated about uh, just 11 feet or so lengthwise. Killed rat snake, maximum size 10 foot. Okay, so my estimate was a bit off. Um, two days later, that same snake crawled into one of the bathrooms uh, at the research station. Uh, the research uh, station staff uh, discreetly caught it and uh, measured it up. It was a 13 foot king cobra. Wow. <laughs> yeah, good thing you didn't Yeah, that. Jesus. Exactly. Good Lord. So, so it's just make the right decisions. Don't, don't be too, 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 uh, too adventurous. We actually have a mutual friend who was in Africa mm -hmm. uh, for a while and he said he was going after some Pelusius and there was, it was at a watering hole and there were wildebeest nearby. So he thought they were like, uh, like they would behave for some reason like normal cattle. So he kind of walked up to him and was like, ah, get out of here. <laughs> and they chased him up a tree. <laughs> yeah, having been chased by actual cows in the field. So yeah, cows don't necessarily, or cattle don't necessarily go. They're not always gentle giants. Yeah. Especially when they're cow calving, you know, yep. they have babies, they'll trample you. Yep. Well, so I, I think we can sort of wrap things up. We'd like to close out with a few things, uh, just in terms of sort of a last question. Um, for someone that's looking to make turtle conservation or research part of a career, what's some, some advice that you would have? Well, there's, there's lots of stuff that we still need to do about turtles. We need to do more research. We need to do more about how we conserve them best. Uh, there's an awful lot of other stuff, turtle specific to do. But also, uh, if you want to make a contribution to turtle conservation in your career, as we said, the turtles are threatened by this whole portfolio of threats and impacts. If you can do something about any of those, improve traffic safety, wildlife crossings at uh, highways, underpasses, uh, um, do something about the climate uh, change. There's, there's so much things that have direct or indirect benefits to turtles and their conservation. There's, so much to do first of all 
be a responsible citizen, minimize your impact on the environment. All right. Yeah, that's <laughs> solid. Yeah, that was solid. Yeah, that was solid. And then, so the other one too that that's always interesting to ask is, uh, and this is the one that I find myself trying to, I think we all do, explain to people. But why should people care about turtles? Mm-hmm. Well, the world will continue to take over without turtles, but it would just be sad to lose them. They're nice. They're cute. Um, they're interesting. They're fascinating. They gave a lot of people a lot of uh, joy and. Uh, enjoyment and the world's just a, a poorer place without turtles mm-hmm. and the other benefit of turtles nobody dislikes turtles yeah it's not like we're trying to conserve crocodiles <laughs> <laughs> yeah and another big thing about turtles is that they're keystone species for you know they're seed dispersers they're predators they're prey they they really do a lot to keep Exactly. different ecosystems moving they're, they're part of that whole complicated ecosystem mm-hmm. web and some of it we know as you say you see dispersing predation yeah and with gopher some... tortoises they yeah. provide burrows for other animals exactly. i mean if you take these animals out of the equation the, yeah. the ecosystem starts to decay and collapse yeah, yeah so it's for an ecosystem, from an ecosystem perspective the turtles are probably more important than from a human perspective mm-hmm. humanity will take over fine without turtles right, so, right. But then again humanity also has ideas of uh, living in a space uh, mm-hmm. station, uh, feeding on hydroponic lettuce. To me, that would be tor- a torture. Should be yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think there's a, there would be just a sadness to it if we lost turtles, just because yeah. of how long they've been around mm-hmm. and how much, yeah. they, how much information they represent, and yeah, and I, how long this everything about them. And, you know, every culture holds turtles in some sort of high regard. You know, most, most, most cultures, <laughs> not all, but. Um, you know, like you look at Native American culture, yeah. you look at uh, African or uh, Aboriginal, and it's all there. They all hold turtles in very high yeah. regards. Yeah, it, it's a part of our intellectual yeah. heritage and background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the first animals you even learn about as a child is a turtle. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd argue. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, yeah, that, that, I think that's, that makes a lot of sense, and it points out like using i think using them as a utility to humans is uh what they do for the ecosystem you can trace that back to how it benefits us but i it's not really you wouldn't be able to argue that if we lose turtles like you said that it's it's going to be the end of humanity it's right. more that it's right. just it's imperative for us sort of to quote something that dr Rodine said when he when he came on is that it's just kind of this moral imperative yeah. uh, that we should take to it. And it's like looking in the, reading through the, the Asian turtle trait monograph, like there's just a photo in there that he took. And and it's just, uh, it's of one of the traders holding a, a oh, yeah. Chinese yep. box turtle. And yeah. That just, for whatever reason I was going through it, I, I was looking at that for a while and it just kind of, brought all together we're all at this meeting and it's all people that are just united by their interest in turtles yep. and it can just be that moral imperative uh so i think that's that's good unless anyone has anything else to add uh, well i think we should maybe try around a trivia yeah so oh, we, right. we, we like to do this we've done this with i think it's about 47 guests at this point uh, we we I forgot to mention this again. Too, yeah, I, I do all. I I forget. Yeah, but uh, if you've got any turtle trivia questions, like really obscure facts, 
Uh, it can be about anything, and you want to throw. Yeah, them it's all like away. a quiz. You just cool. Yeah, kinda, like I quiz mean. each other at the end. We all come up with like a question, and Ooh, I did. My questions are going to be too bizarrely nerdy, and without that's preparation, fine. it's going to be really hard. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that's how I. Uh, yeah, uh, if you've got something on the top of your head, but uh, try to stump us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which you probably do really easily. But. Yeah. yeah. Um, try to stump you. That'd be hard, you know. Pretty big time turtle nerds here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's always tough on the top of the head. We yeah. could. Uh, well, I could start. And all right, you guys, come over. Yeah, like, what what year one. was the Sulawesi forest turtle described? I'm gonna give give that 1996. Any other? Any other? 1995. Yeah, 1995. Oh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll try to think of something if, uh, if you're still thinking of one. Uh, oh, um, this is – there's some, okay, this is kind of an open-ended question, I guess. What's one thing that's unique, broadly speaking, about the chicken turtle skull? Um, other than kind of the arrangement of the eyes pretty close to the front and being very elongated like a, a chitra skull. Uh, I'm going to suspect there might be some kin kinesis in that skull. It's possible. They're real, going through uh, like uh, Gaffney's work mm -hmm. on all of them, uh, uh, like the whole osteology of turtles. He mentioned that that pretty much works. Uh, the, the, the eye, the orbits are pretty mm -hmm. weird. They meant the wiring of the nerves in the head is the, the, uh, fossa for those wiring right. yeah. is, is different. It's flipped. Oh. I don't remember the exact configuration of it, but it's not typical of amidids. Mm -hmm. So that, but that was another good point. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've got, if anything, I, I, yeah, I've All right. come <laughs> up with something and this is going to be yeah, maybe just be very simple because it's so straightforward if you uh, are on the right track. But uh, what turtle is uh, least related to any other turtle, which has the oh, greatest man. evolutionary distinctness of any turtle, living turtle? Extant. Extant, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not talking Proganocalis or something. <laughs> oh, man. I should know this. I know. I feel like it's right on the tip of my tongue. I have an idea, but just shoot. I can even give you two close contenders. Yeah, that's a really good question. Oh, I do know the answer to this. Yeah, I think. I think. Uh, Coretta Kelly's bingo. I knew it. I knew it. Oh man. Okay, who is number two? I was gonna say number two and number three. Is Dermot Kelly's up there? Nope. Close. That was my second guess. Yeah, that, that's my five or six. Yeah. No, I who's next? Dermatomies? What? Dermatomies? Uh, no. They're not there. Soft shells is a lineage. Is it clay? It's a clay. So they're all so, related yeah, yeah, to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That doesn't, that's and they're right. the closest to the Karatakelis, but so yeah. that's like 120 million years or so. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. So it, it yeah, almost by definition has to be a monotypic family. 
Yes, it is. Or at least something that is... Uh, it's not big at Eternals, though. Yeah. No, they, they sit in between yeah. the uh, torches and the yeah. United. Yeah. So we just talked with uh, Brad Schaefer. Mm -hmm. We had him on, yep. and he spoke about this. But, this, okay, the second one. Uh, what's another? Dermatemidae? The four monotypics are Dermocalis, Papisternum, the... Um, Karatakalis and uh, who's number four? There's not that, there's a four. Platystern, it was. Yeah, Platystern, I thought I'd mentioned that. So, anyway, um, it's Eremicalis uh, in Madagascar. Oh, okay. Uh, very closely followed by Pella, um, Sudamidura. Oh, Sudamidura, yeah. Okay. Right. Dang, I didn't even think that. Was, that was a good Kelly's question. Though. That was really good. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking the fa the family level, so I didn't even yeah. think of. No, but the the Keelids are an incredibly ancient family. Yeah, so even okay. Though that's, yeah, wow, it was, so, it was definitely some family. It's it's yeah, yeah. My mind kept going to big headed for some reason. It was going to um, the Amazonian big headed turtles for some reason. Now it's, that one is also a, pretty good. Yeah. yeah, but that one is a little closer to the population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Urban colors is pretty. All right. Well, I think that's that's good. <laughs> uh, that was fun and. Uh, Thanks again. It's it's really an honor to yeah, talk for you. Yeah, for real. It's so nice. Yeah. All right. Cool. This has uh, been episode forty three, and we'll see you on the next one.